Welcome to the Branding Boardroom, the podcast where we discuss brand strategy and how it should be understood, formulated, and implemented by senior corporate decision makers. Our guests range from prominent CEOs to accomplished academics and thought leaders. But there's so much more. They're also interesting people. And on the show, you'll get to learn about their stories and about the advice that they give to the world's top companies. My name is Ivo Ganchev. I'm your host and a senior executive at Top Brand Union, a Chinese consultancy which publishes influential ranking tables in the branding industry. We also organize the annual China Brand Festival. And this year, it's taking place right here in Changsha, where our secretariat is located. Now follow me into the branding boardroom. Dennis Yu is a prominent digital marketing expert and public speaker with over 30 years of high-level experience. He has held executive positions at Yahoo and American Airlines, among other companies, and has managed marketing campaigns for global brands such as Nike and Rosetta Stone. During his career, Dennis has been in charge of campaigns worth over $1 billion for agencies he manages or advises. He's currently the Chief Technology Officer of Blitzmetrics, a digital marketing company that partners with schools to train young adults and aims to create 1 million new jobs globally. Dennis is a renowned public speaker who has delivered keynotes in over 20 countries across multiple continents. He has been quoted widely in various media outlets, including CNN, Fox News, CBS Evening News, The Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, among others. In 2018, he was awarded a PPC Caesars Award for his public speaking. Dennis has authored or co-authored multiple books on social media marketing, including the number one best-selling book on Amazon, The Definitive Guide to TikTok Ads. And it's my great pleasure to welcome today on the branding boardroom, the one and only Dennis Yu. How are you doing, Dennis? Hey, Yuval. How are you doing? I'm all right. Where are you calling from today? We're in Washington, D.C. That's very good. I think that we all know that you travel a lot and you work with uh, a lot of clients. And I think that uh, our audience already knows that you have a very exciting lifestyle and a great career. But let's start by talking a little bit about how you got there. How did your career start? What is your story? And how did you get to where you are today and to this level of success? I'm an American-born Chinese, which is what we call an ABC. I didn't speak English until I was six. And like the typical Chinese child, I was good at math, and I enjoyed competing in you know math kinds of things. But I didn't have the social skills. I didn't know how to communicate. I was made fun of. And it wasn't until I had mentors. I was just very fortunate that I had the CEO of American Airlines to be a mentor of mine. And he just kind of adopted me in, in some kind of way. And he got me my first job. And I built the website for American Airlines back in the mid-90s, almost 30 years ago. You can see that's when I had a lot more hair before. And I learned about internet marketing in the very early days where it was HTML4, so we weren't even collecting credit cards yet. It was just putting up very basic sorts of websites. And I found that what I learned about math, then about economics, because I went to the London School of Economics, 
to get a master's there, and I had an undergrad in finance from Southern Method, Methodist University that a lot of the numbers crunching and you know managing servers and managing customer data files came in very handy. And at American Airlines, we had this customer database of 20 million people, all the people who had bought plane tickets or were members of the Advantage program. And I learned how to go from direct mail. You ever have like the monthly statement and it says, you know, you have 20,000 miles and here's some offers for hotels and rental cars and things like that. I learned to take that kind of marketing and personalize it for email marketing and to make offers when people are on the website. So if you're in Los Angeles, I could say, you know, hey, Evo, I know you'd like to go to sunny destinations. How about this special fare to San Diego or to Cancun, Mexico? I thought maybe you would like that based on your past travel preference. I notice your wife likes to eat at these kinds of restaurants. How about a $25 coupon, right? And so I learned how to do a lot of the personalized marketing. Then I just happened to be in the right place at the right time because then a few years later after that, we took American Airlines from nothing to $3 million a day in revenue, which is great. It was so much fun because the website would go down all the time. We negotiated these things with different vendors. And then Yahoo wanted to build some analytics because they just started their search engine. So I was one of the first people there. And that was 20-something years ago. Man, I'm feeling really old. It feels like it was all just a couple of years ago, but it was over 20 years ago. So I was very lucky to be early in those days. And at Yahoo, I applied a lot of what I'd learned at American Airlines, which is also what I learned in doing a lot of computation and math, which is large data sets. So we had 13 terabytes of data per day from the search. Can you imagine like all the things that people were searching on Yahoo all came to my team. We had to process those and figure out, you know, what are people searching on? How do we show ads to people that are looking for vacation destinations or they're looking for a new cell phone and we have Verizon and we'll show them a Verizon ad or they're maybe shopping for a truck and we'll show them a ad for a brand new Ford F-150 because we know they'd like to go outdoors, right? And I just learned so much from being there in the early days, but it wouldn't have been possible unless I was able to gather all the data. So <clears throat> my particular advantage was working with really large data sets. And so while there's a lot of people that will work on like the overall brand and advertising campaigns, <clears throat> I always looked at it from the, from the bottom up, which is every inner individual transaction, every phone call, every email, every time they've complained, every time they've clicked like on an Instagram post, and the measurement of a brand, we've looked at it as how do we sum all of those and be able to create lots of different micro segments, personalized against those segments, so that each customer has a highly personalized journey, and figure out the value of the brand from trying to increase the personalization, increase the engagement rate, increase the lifetime value, that then results in the overall, you know, financial stock market value of the company, or how much you know the brand is worth from an advertising standpoint, or how much awareness they have. Those are all good, but my particular professional career has been built on the individual data points and trying to nurture those up with different campaigns and then see how does that impact the, the overall brand from the consumer level up, not the ad agency with the campaign, you know, coming up with the new Super Bowl commercial. Wow. I mean, what an exciting journey. And really, you've been through it all since, uh, I think, uh, the beginning of sort of the boom of the uh, internet marketing, email marketing and all of that. Hmm. And uh, definitely, I can tell you still look good, even though some of your hair is gone, Dennis. <laughs> Do I even look uh, but, I don't, know. don't answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, you, you look all right. You look all right. But yeah. 
You've uh, worked so much with uh, data in different capacities, uh, but at the same time, you've uh, built a number of uh, businesses you help agencies mm -hmm. expand. Um, mm -hmm. And when you talk mm -hmm. about data, it sounds like this is something that uh, has really driven your career, and mm -hmm. it's uh, been something that's uh, extremely important to uh, the companies that you work with as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, coming from the background of somebody who has worked extensively with data and somebody who also builds businesses and scales things up, do you think that data can tell us everything and what types of things can data tell us and what types of things maybe it cannot? Well, data is not everything. It's like left brain and right brain. It's like doing surveys that are quantitative versus qualitative, right? Data can quantitatively tell us how many times people bought. They can tell us when a customer left. They can tell us what they bought, but they can't tell us why they did something. So why is qualitative. I remember doing, when we were doing some stuff at Yahoo, I ran um, all the PPC for Yahoo at one point. So I think at one point in time, for a very brief moment, I was the, the number one PPC marketer on the planet. I spent more money than anyone else because I was spending all of Yahoo's money. It wasn't my money, to be clear. And I remember running some ads for Yahoo Personals, which is the dating site. And we did some surveys because we were growing. We launched this thing brand new. There was already Match.com, eHarmony, all these other guys. We launched it. We had the advantage of the number one website on the internet, the Yahoo.com homepage. So we did have a slight advantage there, of course. But people were signing up for our dating site. And we did some surveys. We did some focus groups. And we asked people, how did you find out about us? Of course, standard question. And a lot of people said, well, we saw your ads on Google. And, I said, and I'm thinking, we didn't run any ads on Google. We ran ads on our own network, Yahoo. We ran ads on AOL. We ran ads on other search networks, but I wasn't running any Google ads. So it told me that qualitatively, the it's not like these people are lying. Like we knew, like, what is it? Like 50, 60% of people that go to dating sites, they lie about their age or they use pictures that are like three years older, you know, whatever it is. Like there's the white lies, whatever you want to call them. But it's not that they were lying about what they saw, but they thought they actually saw an ad on Google. They thought they actually opened an email when actually it was a text message or whatnot. So memory is reconstructive. So asking questions that we could actually determine based on their behavior, which is quantitative, is where a lot of the data comes in. And then the qualitative is like, why did you do a certain thing? So I see a lot of mistakes. Like we did work with Jack Daniels, which is a major whiskey brand. And we had this persona that we called Bubba. And Bubba was the main avatar because he believed in America. And, you know, and he, he, was, he was conservative and he listened to rock and roll music and things like this. And we just built this persona around the Jack Daniels avatar. And it was mostly true. But we, we did that on a very small focus group. So for years and years, this is, the, I think, the number one alcoholic beverage, right? At least among whiskey. You know, Jack Daniels. You've heard of Jack Daniels. And... Our, all of our marketing was based, well, until we came in and started applying data, all of their marketing was based upon the heuristics, the anecdotes of just a few people that got very closely studied in the one-way mirrors and this kind of thing. And then we came in and said, well, wait a minute. Jack Daniels is an international brand. Jack Daniels has a different perception in Brazil than in the United States. And with Jack Daniels launching other flavors besides Tennessee whiskey, so there's Tennessee honey, and there's a fireball competitor, which is cinnamon flavored, and there's apple, and there's different demographics. So we had like a mobile DJ booth that went into Chicago, into like the poorer parts of town, and, and had a different view than this, the southern white man kind of, you know, whiskey drinking, pickup truck driving. But we found through the data 
that there were many, many different pockets that, with, that were loyal to the brand, but for different reasons. And thus, we, it was, I like, I felt like this was a, like one of these career achievements. Like, you know, sometimes on your resume, you like, you do something like, ah, yeah, that's, that's like a resume moment, right? And one of the resume moments for me was being able to work with all the different brands at Brown Foreman, which included Jack Daniels, to say, here's who you think, who you think your core avatar is. But here's the people who are actually engaging and who are actually buying the product. And if we adjusted some of your campaigns, we could actually increase sales. We could actually increase, and, and it'd be different on you know, TikTok versus Facebook versus YouTube. We found different sorts of, which of course the audiences are different, but until you have the data to present that to the executives, most CMOs, they're using anecdotal data because they like to tell stories. But anecdotal data, as you know, highly inaccurate because people just like to, they, they let, let the stories you know, overcome the facts. And so I think there's kind of a balance between those two. And that's what I think is so fun about the art and science of brand because a, a data person like me will come at it from this angle because we just, you know, like maybe you're right-handed and you prefer using your right hand, but you have to learn how to use your left hand too. Definitely. This comprehensive approach is really something that if you want to broaden your audience, if you want to build a, glo a global brand these days, especially when everything is online, uh, you definitely do have to, to look uh, more and more into the data while also keeping um, in sight the, the qualitative part of uh, everything as well. Um, now, you uh, are working, I'm guessing, mainly on blitz metrics these, day, these days and um, perhaps on some other projects. Uh, so when people ask you, what do you do? Uh, what do you tell them? And what does also blitz metrics do? I am here to create a million jobs. That is my life's mission. I retired 20 years ago. I was very lucky just being in the right place at the right time. I'm not any smarter than anyone else. I'm not any more special. I just happened to you know, be in the right place at the right time in a few different situations that made some money. And I'd like nothing more than to give back. And what made the biggest impact on my life, Evo, was having a mentor when I had nothing, when I had no connections and be able to train me and be able to meet you know, sitting presidents of the United States and have dinner with people like this or Margaret Thatcher, or I had dinner with Herb Kelleher, who was the founder of Southwest Airlines or the CEO of Goldman Sachs. I mean, how awesome is that, right? I would never have opportunities like this, but someone else opened the door for me. Then I thought, you know, how do I do that on a much larger scale? So I started taking people under my wing from local universities and I started speaking at conferences and I started hiring people. I got in trouble with HR departments like in American Airlines and Yahoo saying, hey, you can't hire people like this. They don't meet the qualifications. I said, it doesn't matter. I'm going to train them, right? I just, I made so many other vice presidents mad by doing that. And I would pay them more than you're supposed to pay them because HR would say, well, according to this, someone who has three years of experience should only make $50,000 or whatever the number was. I'm like, no, but I'm going to pay 70 because that's the going rate in Silicon Valley and I want people who are good. You know, so I want to create jobs and jobs is what's meaningful to me. And I think that there's a, a I'm not going to get on my high horse here, but there's a significant issue with the education system where a degree doesn't necessarily equal a job. So I want to bridge that by having apprenticeship, actual real world experience, not an internship, but real, you know, as you're going through school, learn how to actually take on clients and start an agency. So we have thousands of students that are in our program across hundreds of universities. Like the University of Sunshine Coast has 200 students under Dr. Karen Freeberg. 
And as part of their social media course training, they have to adopt a local business. So Eva, I'd ask you, what's the difference between like, you know, reading a book and writing an essay or paper or whatever versus your your grade is based on you have to choose that local restaurant. You have to choose that dentist and you have to help them make videos. You have to be able to not just submit a paper at the end of the season. You have to actually talk to them and create a strategy for them and interact with them and learn how to communicate and run ads for them and build their website and use these different tools that we have training on. So everything we have is hands-on, vocational. I just love doing that because for a data person like me, it's very measurable. And so this mission of creating a million jobs, we have a number of partners. GoDaddy is fantastic. Fiverr, my friends at onlinejobs.ph, they have two million virtual assistants. 30 minutes ago, I, was, I did a live stream with Rehan Alawala, who's probably the most famous person in Pakistan, right? Fantastic, right? And we're speaking at universities. There's a big conference I'm going to be at in their capital city in a month from now. And we are now a quarter of the way there towards our mission of a million jobs. Can you imagine? Like that's it. I feel so good that we've created a quarter million jobs. But now other friends of mine are saying, Dennis, you, you've shot the goal too low. You need to make it 10 million jobs. But either way, this is my life's mission. This is not just some fun thing to do. I'm putting my life behind it. It's something worthwhile. And I encourage anyone else who is interested in doing this to be able to teach from what you know. Let's make this happen. Well, it's very exciting, very noble as well, Dennis, I think. And um, something that um, almost sounds like a, a presidential slogan, let's create a million jobs. Um, <laughs> I'm not a politician. So, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I'm an engineer. I'm a search engine maybe. engineer who wants to create jobs. Maybe I have to think about changing professions, perhaps, but um, it's definitely something that's very exciting, and it's something that um, I think uh, might uh, also be of interest to some of our audience, a lot of which is in China. Uh, so uh, if, you would, uh, if you could expand on it a little bit more, I think that could uh, help to articulate what exactly you're doing. Is it only in the U.S., or is it global? You mentioned Pakistan, uh, the Philippines. Uh, how are you creating these jobs sort of across? different countries and platforms as well type of programs do you actually run uh, if you could explain a little bit more of this uh, to our Chinese audience I think that would be very helpful for them to understand how exactly it works in practical terms well we all understand that we live in a global economy and whoever can render that product or service at the same quality but for cheaper is going to be able to win or render it at higher quality and get more money so when it comes to things like digital agencies and helping local service businesses, for example, the funny thing is that you could be a local business like a dentist in Miami, Florida, or a chiropractor in Denver, Colorado, but the work be can be done by someone in Beijing, right? Or it could be a business in London, but the work can be done by someone in Pakistan. And you saw with COVID, the move towards digital means that you don't physically have to be there. There's so much in terms of services where you now drive up to a McDonald's drive-through and make your order if you even ever eat a McDonald's. I sometimes go there just to see like what the new technology is. And it's someone in India or in the Philippines who's answering the phone while you're going through the drive-through. So there's a decoupling of the physical location. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, this great resignation or people, you know, not having to go in the office because of COVID or whatever. There's a lot of people that have been able to break free, and as long as they have a good internet connection, they can work anywhere. Like I'm working today from Washington, D.C., and tomorrow I'm working from New York City. And the beauty is it, the jobs are portable. 
A lot of us, we can bring our jobs with us. So as long as our friends in China can speak good English, they can do business with anyone in America. And a lot of our American friends are learning Chinese. People like you that are not Chinese looking speak Chinese. That's awesome, right? Think about how many Chinese people are so impressed when they hear that you speak Chinese, right? Or I'll go into an Asian restaurant with friends of mine and I'll order in Chinese and then I'll say something in English, right? Just to kind of shock people because I have no accent in either language. But it's amazing the kinds of friendships that we can make. I've spoken at conferences in Hong Kong and at Beijing on digital marketing, obviously, you know, Google versus Baidu or, you know, ByteDance is a different company. I mean, the, this book was sponsored by ByteDance. They're the ones who said, hey, create some training on TikTok because I'm one of the top people when it comes to Facebook advertising in terms of training and all that. So they said, hey, I'll help people move from TikTok or from Facebook to TikTok. So I see no boundaries between where the work can be done and, you know, maybe there's some political issues or whatnot. Those are certainly true, but we have friends that are all over, right? You and I, we are talking and we are on opposite sides of the planet. I don't even know what time it is where you are right now. Well, <laughs> it's definitely much earlier than, uh, than it is uh, in the U.S. So that's why I have my, uh, my morning coffee right here with me. Um, but uh, definitely, I think that what you're uh, saying is something that... Um, that uh, maybe should be embraced uh, even a little bit more um, across places like China. And um, there's definitely a lot of room for them to get integrated more into the global labor market as well, um, instead of just looking at uh, sourcing talent from within the country. Um, but uh, you also mentioned social media, and uh, you've clearly, you're clearly extremely um, sort of uh, well-versed in working with all kinds of different platforms. You've written about uh, TikTok. So when you think of uh, social media, is it something that has become truly globalized, or are there also, is there room for making local approaches <laughs> to the way that you structure your campaigns there? And what are the recent developments um, on the big social media platforms? You know, the funny thing is that the latest news that we've heard, so depending on when you guys are listening or watching, people are saying that TikTok is about to overtake Google as the number one search engine. And at one point a year ago, TikTok was the number one website, more visited than all the other websites as well. And that caused, of course, seeing Instagram to try to copy TikTok. And you see, you know, Twitter and YouTube and the other guys try to create their version of mobile selfie style entertaining kinds of videos that are geared towards what's interesting as opposed to what your friends are doing which is what facebook is doing but what i see is this it's kind of weird and people can feel free to argue with me because i this is just what i believe is my opinion but i see a convergence of social media because if you literally open up your phone and you go to one of these social networks and i you know click on one of them and i start scrolling through the feed you probably, like even like a LinkedIn, I'm scrolling, you probably can't immediately tell it's LinkedIn unless you look in the corner and you see the little blue square, right? All the social networks now have kind of a common framework because there's who's saying it, there's the body of the content, and then there's on the side maybe some ability to engage or like or whatnot. And if you see that framework is very similar and there's more media than anyone can possibly ever consume because there's the amount of media is growing exponentially in our, our time we still have 24 hours per day and we have to sleep and eat and things like that means that the filter power i know it's a little esoteric but i'm going somewhere the filter power 
of the algorithm has to be stronger and stronger because there's more content than we actually have attention for. So as this piece, as the amount of content grows, disproportionate to our finite amount of attention, the algorithm is going to prioritize things that are more likely to be a hit. In other words, it's harder and harder for us as brands or even consumers to get things into the feed for Reddit, for Instagram, for Snapchat, for Pinterest, for whatever it is, Facebook, they're all the same because you still have the same underlying problem of more content that can be digested in the amount of time that you have available. Therefore, the things that win, because the bar is, is high across the board, the things that win, meaning they, get, they show up in the feed, tend to be the same kinds of things. So that's why we see kind of a convergence because the algorithm is going to prioritize those particular items which end up having to be hits and those hits all share the same characteristics. Now counter that with what you just mentioned, what about localization? What about someone who is a student in Beijing? Can they really do work for a personal injury attorney in Atlanta or work for Coca-Cola you know, in Atlanta? Well, yes and no, because there's cultural differences for those particular consumers. But then again, Coke being a multinational company is going to want to employ people who understand all the different kinds of cultures. Last month, I was in Kosovo, which is a country of 2 million people. And my friend Benjamin Kolonovic has 40% of the ad spend in that country. He is a dominant player. He started this agency two years ago during COVID, and now he's the number one player by far. We were eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I took a picture of myself and him eating fried chicken, and I tagged Kentucky Fried Chicken in the post on Facebook. And I'm verified. I have a million followers. And Kentucky Fried Chicken replied. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is so cool. And I said, it's someone on your team, isn't it, Ben, that's replying? And he said yes. And he told me that he was so successful with mobile ordering in Kosovo that he caused KFC to run out of chicken in the country. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this only would have been possible in Kosovo given their particular conditions because it wouldn't have been the same in France. It wouldn't have been the same in Los Angeles and whatnot. And there's obviously there's different cultural and language and other kinds of concerns. So the weird thing is that we're still we're localizing our campaigns, but ironically, that global force that is working on those campaigns can be anywhere. So I have a lot of I have an army of people in the Philippines that do video editing, but we also have some friends that live in the Philippines and are making Filipino wages that are expats from America because for various reasons, they don't want to live in America anymore. You know, they left America and we have people, you know, like you that are like with these transplants. So it could be any, you can live anywhere as long as you're able to adapt to that local culture. I have some friends who are in Thailand and they're Americans and they're working for American brands and it's just fine, right? We have a lot of, I have friends that are Pakistani. One of them is one of the executives at T-Mobile, which is a big telecom. And he, he's Pakistani, but he lives in New Jersey. How's that, right? That's awesome. 
Yeah, and I think that you you summarized actually uh, very concisely some of the of the great trends that we're seeing, and it's almost a global convergence of the platforms and the way that they are used to to reach out to people and a localization, as you mentioned, of the campaigns. I think that actually answered one of the questions that we discussed with um, a guest on one of the previous episodes with Sophie Bowman about the way the algorithms change and why they change on social media. And uh, once you put into perspective that uh, sort of the, the amount of content is always increasing and the algorithms adjust so that they can show you the more relevant content, I think that's also answers one of the, the questions that we discussed earlier um, on the show. Um, but uh, now when you talk about social media and the way that you try to engage with people. For example, you mentioned the, exa- uh, the, the, the uh, story of replying to a photo that was posted and the company was tagged, in your case, KFC. Um, you also mentioned about um, uh, things about building your own uh, presences on social media as well and having a million followers. So how do you do this? How do you build a personal brand these days on social media that's successful? And how do you actually attract people's attention, get to show up in the algorithms and gain authority in a sense? That is a big question that could be a whole day seminar. But let me say it this way. Back to what we were saying before about people being inundated with social media and being more content than whatever and brands feeling like they have to yell louder, right, to be able to stand out. Now consumers are so smart that they are allergic to ads. You and I, we can spot an ad a mile away, right? How many of our friends who are brand marketers say, I don't click on ads, right? So ironically, the the ads that are the most successful are the things that don't look like ads. So I remember doing some stuff for the Golden State Warriors, which won the NBA championship for those of you guys who watch basketball. And one of the sponsors, so you have all these sponsors like the airlines and the banks that pay to have their ads in the stadium and pay for the commercials, right? And it's very obvious that those are ads, right, for the car companies. Like we had ads for Kia. Kia paid paid us money because Steph Curry, we went to honor him as like the player of the year, right? And it was obvious in advertisement where you see Steph Curry and he is driving a Kia. Do you think Steph Curry drives a Kia, Evo? No, he drives an orange Lamborghini, and I've seen it, right? Because I've seen him drive this Lamborghini around, and he only did it for the commercial. And so that it's, it's kind of inauthentic in a way because people want what's real. So if you want to build a personal brand, you have to do things that are the exact opposite of what looks like a commercial. So what does that mean? Film on your cell phone instead of on a professional camera. Film without perfect lighting. Film, even if you're not in this perfect environment that looks like a TV commercial. Say things that are more, that, that, if, that feel like you're more vulnerable instead of like, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. Right now it's on sale, 20%. So say other things like tell a story, talk about your children, talk about some concern that you have, right? Things that don't do the exact opposite of commercial. And we find that us as personal brands are really the back to what i was saying before about like an american airlines and yahoo if we take the like a, a brand if you measure like what's the power of a brand you know this is what we're talking about with these global brand rankings i view it as the sum of every little micro transaction and relationship that we have everything is a micro deposit or a withdrawal whether or not they're a customer or not 
or a partner, an employee, or whatever it is. Everything is a microtransaction across social media. That's what it is. So if you really want to build the power of your brand, of your company brand, then make as many of your customers as happy as possible, employees as happy as possible, because it's not just what you say or the leader or the CMO has to say. It's the sum of all these other pieces. The former CEO of T-Mobile, he actually hopped in on one of my clubhouse rooms. He came in like two or three times, which is crazy. And this guy, he's showing videos of himself grilling, you know, making margaritas, giving out laptops. He's wearing a black leather motorcycle jacket, doing things that are the exact opposite of like the CEO in the annual report, who's like very professional, right? And that's, and I'm not saying you have to do the anti thing. I'm not saying you have to, you know, be like naked or be at the beach or I'm not saying you have to shock people, but you have to do things that are the exact opposite of what you would expect in the TV commercial because you have to stand out. It has to, you know, it's like, oh, it's, this is Evo. And he's, he's like messaging me from his backyard as he's at the pool, you know, and he's playing with the beach ball. Like, oh, okay, that now I feel like I actually know him versus this is obviously actors, obviously in a TV commercial, right? So us as professionals, that means that we have to share these little authentic stories. So you, you want to see some proof as an example? How about this? So I, I travel all over the world and I'm going to open up my Google Photos, which automatically has all the photos of where I've ever been and what I'm doing. So Evo, name uh, any city in the world. London. And this is the power of social networks and Google and Amazon. And all these guys do this, right? So I do a search for London. And here's food that I've eaten in London. Here's my friend Amir, who has the most expensive coffee in the world. One pound of coffee, guess how much this coffee is? What's expensive coffee? <laughs> Hundreds of dollars, possibly, thousands $2,500 <laughs> for one pound of coffee. Now, if he wanted to do corporate stuff, he would show, and he does, he's, he has all the, like the Michelin star chefs, like the fanciest restaurants, his coffee is in there. Because these are the only people who really, really care about, you know, there's a certain point, like the coffee gets a little better, the product gets a little bit better, but all of a sudden it's like 10 times more expensive. There's kind of like this curve, right? But you can see he's, here he is, he's in his kitchen, he's making coffee, his kids are running around, he's talking about the coffee, and he's literally telling stories, right? He's saying, I got this at auction. Let me tell you about the story about how I found it. And it's not in a, in a commercial-like way. And I filmed it on my iPhone here because you said London. So it's tagged as London. And you can see we're doing, he's got this gold cup. He does this coffee in, and we're talking about what else does he like to eat because he's very much a foodie. He has expensive cars and watches because he's a collector. I, also, I went to London and I picked up, no, I was in London and I flew to Los Angeles to pick up a guitar from Sting so that he could play on stage with Sting at a concert. Like, how cool is that? And you can see I was in London a little bit before that. And there's the London Eye. And they're, I'm, they're friends of mine. And we're making videos. And we're having a good time in the different museums. And at the same time, we're promoting our different programs. We're interviewing clients that we have in a very casual kind of setting. There we are at the National Portrait Gallery, right? So this is very consumer-esque looking, but then again, we are using these in ads. We're, we're putting a lot of money behind some of these particular components, right? Because we're trying to do the exact opposite of a commercial. So I'm building my brand 
So if you're a company, you can build a company by harnessing a whole bunch of different consumers in different niches and to be able to build those instead of like having one single monolith brand. Like I mentioned with Jack Daniels, you have these different representatives in these different pockets and you promote each of those brands and then the algorithm on social media will find the other people that are the single moms that are very busy and stressed out because having you have to take care of the kid and also work. Or like whatever the avatar is, you find example customers of each of those and you let the algorithm do the targeting. So that way it looks organic, it feels organic, but you are paying for distribution, which is what I call social, social postage, right? That's where I think personal branding and corporate branding fit in because now this whole thing with influencers and creators is just another way of saying, hey, if you're a brand, the most authentic stuff is user-generated content. How do you gather user-generated content at scale? My friend Tommy Mello is CEO of A1 Garage. He's the largest home services business in the United States. So if you're in the United States and you go around anywhere, you'll see billboards and trucks with his face on them. And instead of running regular TV commercials saying, hey, did you know the garage door is the smile of your house? Like You can imagine like what a commercial looks like. Instead... He has hundreds of technicians that go about, and these are not professional marketers. These are people that install garage doors, right? Very blue collar, right? Not, not marketing people. They're, they go through all this training. They're kind of a little rough. And we've trained those people while they're out there on the job to collect little 15-second videos with Sally, the homeowner. Hey, Sally, how, what do you think about the garage door? Do you like it? Oh, you do? Awesome. Can we make a 15-second video? Because if I do, my boss will give me a bonus for every video that I make. And so now we've, we've turned all of these technicians that are out there driving around trucks installing garage doors, we've turned them into basically parts of our marketing team. Now, you can't beat that, right? You can have the best ad agency on the planet, but we have hundreds of people that are, that are interacting directly with our customer, collecting their feedback, and then turning those things into ads. I think that the strategy sounds very, very um, sort of um, in a way natural as it sort of promotes the human connection between uh, the people that provide the service and the consumers as well. And you get direct feedback, as you mentioned. Um, now, at the same time, you also have, though, these big companies that still spend outrageous amounts on advertising campaigns and billboards. So as you were explaining all of this, which I completely agree with and which I think is, of course, uh, one of the other great trends of our time um, when it comes to influencers as well. And as we move a little bit away from traditional marketing, the natural question that comes to mind here is, What's the role of these traditional ads that cost so much money and that companies keep spending on and that we keep seeing everywhere? Why are they still here and why do companies ask us to do this? Because they come to us with uh, these types of requests. We want, to, we want this billboard. We want the Times Square. We want San Lituan in Beijing, yeah. etc. Well, this, the simple answer is that this is the way that brands have always spent money. This is the relationships that they have with the agencies and the people that are the heads of, you know, the vice presidents and C-level executives will want to do business the way they've always done business, which is over a two martini lunch, you know, doing deals with these other people. And it's tough to put in place these influencer creator sorts of relationships because then you can't just rely upon one agency. Most of the big brands, they love to have an AOR, one main agency who does everything, TV, radio, print. So why not just lump everything into this one thing and then... 
Every quarter we have like a Super Bowl commercial or some big activation or here's our big Christmas sale. So it certainly makes a lot of sense because that's the inertia of the way things have always been done. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. Let me give you an example. We were doing some analytics and advertising for Nike and they, their head of Nike running, this lady, she said that she wanted to do social media and she thought that and it seems to make sense. She said, let's, let's get the, the biggest influencers. And we have a new shoe that comes out, that's coming out and it's lightweight. And let's get the, the comedians and these like actors and politicians or like other sorts of people who are not athletes, who are not marathon runners. And let's fly them out on a helicopter to this cliff at sunset and film them in slow motion running with these new Nike shoes. Because each one of these people, like a DJ Khaled, who's uh, you know like a famous social media comedian kind of rapper guy you know what does he have like 30 million followers each of these different people right wearing the new Nike shoe how do you think that commercial did they spent a lot of money on it they had all the top people in social media wearing this new running shoe that's lighter and faster it didn't do that well well not a good return on the it, cost it, so we <laughs> we put it on social media and the feedback we got was these people are not runners these people are not athletes trying to run their first 10K. These are celebrities who are obviously being paid by Nike to do this. So we had some negative feedback. <clears throat> so we stopped the commercial. And then <clears throat> I got in a little bit of trouble for doing this. But just as a test, I spent my own money. I put a couple hundred dollars of my own money to promote some of the stories of people, just average everyday consumers that were talking about how they train and how they run with Nike right? And how they achieve something it obviously is not a commercial. And when I spent a couple hundred dollars of my own money boosting those posts, it outperformed the one that was very expensive, directed by professional video award-winning sorts of people. So I'm not saying don't do brand commercials because certainly if you have a Nike, there's an expectation that's, that you're going to create this level. Like you expect like a Super Bowl Olympics kind of inspiring, make you cry moment with a big brand. But if you don't have a brand where people expect that, then you're almost always gonna do better with, with UGC. But it has to be not just someone who, not, not some you know comedian who's overweight wearing these shoes, which looks ridiculous. I, I, I saw the commercial and I thought, this is ridiculous, right? But in hindsight, you can always say that. But it's someone who's an actual fan of your product and service. If you have someone who's a, we call that a lighthouse, someone who actually loves your product and service and you promote them, it's not that they're being paid to do that because do you think Steph Curry really cares about driving a Kia? He did it because he got paid or maybe under the contract, you know, all the players have to agree to, you know, whatever, right? Do, do they really eat a Jack in the Box? They show them eating the, the hamburger. I like Jack in the Box too, but I'm pretty sure they're all, they're being paid to show themselves with the Jack in the Box hamburger because it's a contract. I don't think that's what they prefer to eat, right? So you want to show things that are authentic. So then Steph Curry did a, a commercial with the Brita water filter. And that certainly fits with this brand. And you're an athlete, you want to be healthier, you want better performance, you're going to drink water instead of soda. And that makes sense. And th those campaigns did well. So brands have to find their find customers of theirs who know about the product, who can talk about the product, who who they can feature in their everyday life. And then you need a team of people who knows how to work with these other people, not because they have 10 million followers, but because they can actually say something that is credible with their audience. 
Yeah, that message really has to fit in so that it can really uh, get to um, get to form a connection with the people or to sort of uh, incite some sort of uh, genuine response in them, um, perhaps. So uh, when you start to do this on social media, of course, there are some uh, big companies and uh, sort of executives of large departments that might be listening to a program and they might have to read the resources to do this and to try out new strategies and to see what works. Uh, but what if you are perhaps a smaller company and you don't have the big budget um, of the big ones or if perhaps you're a more conservative company and it's more difficult to get approval for funding uh, from, from your, your um, uh, board of directors and your CEO for this type of stuff? Do you have some sort of strategy that allows people to spend just a little bit mm -hmm. on marketing um, so that they can try out their strategies and so that yep. they can see uh, the proof that this is really working and that this is the direction that they should go into? Evo, I'm so glad you asked. <clears throat> the number one thing I'm known for is the dollar a day strategy. And over the course of the last 15 years, we've spent a billion dollars on this particular technique. And it works in every single industry, every kind of product or service. It especially works well with really small companies. And here's how it works. Let's say that you have 50 different pieces of content, 50 different videos, things that you collected from your customer service, from people that or maybe you looked at Twitter and pe people are tagging you in the product or whatever they use. Of course, you get permission. Hey, we love to feature you. Is that OK? And they say, yes, now you have lightweight consent. So legally, you know, you can use their material. And... <clears throat> then you put a post on Google My Business or put a post on Twitter or whatever the particular channel and, and you say, hey, Evo, thank you so much. I'm glad that you know you could make our coffee part of your morning habit or whatever. Let's say it's a coffee company, right? Or whatever the product is, you, you show the product. Like maybe it's this, this particular battery. You know, I'm, a, I'm an electronics manufacturer and I'm showing people, you know, hey, you know, I've got a 14-hour flight from you know Hong Kong to to Los Angeles and I'm able to recharge my laptop or my, I'm able to use my phone the whole time because I'm using this this battery right and it's not a testimonial it's just a fun little thing like this this is woven in as part of like my tips as an executive to overcome jet lag or be productive and part of it is I have a battery so I don't run out you know whatever it might be and if I connect with other people that are sharing stories that involve my product or service that's just an extension of what you already have as part of your operations, your customer service, your community management, whatever you call those different parts of your company that interact with the customer. If you're a really small company, then maybe it's the owner. Maybe you know, the people who are in marketing or the people who are shipping things in the warehouse, maybe they're the ones who are talking to the customer. Maybe the people on the phone. Maybe you have your daughter who's managing the social media of your different channels. Whoever is closest actually talking to the customers and the clients is best positioned to hear those stories and say, wow, that is so awesome. I would, we would love to feature what you're doing to our community. Not as, oh, we want to collect a testimonial where you say using our product has changed your life and you know, now I have more hair because I'm using your hair product. No, 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 it's not a testimonial. It's featuring them. It's highlighting something that's interesting. It's showing how they're giving a particular tip. So if you train those in-house people as part of their existing job, that's part of you know, outbound and inbound customer service because you're already responding to people that are complaining, that are happy, that have warranty issues, that have a question about how to use the product. And as part of that, when you resolve the issue that they have, because normally when people go to social media, it's complaining. Okay, that's how it is. But when you resolve it, that's a great opportunity to say, well, 
Evo, like, did we fix your issue with, you know, turning on your printer or whatever it is? Oh, that's cool. Did, and, and it works all, okay, cool. Did it, does, it's good now? Awesome. Well, what would you say about, and this is, this goes back to like net promoter score and other things, but yes, you can collect a net promoter score, but even better, you say, that is so cool. Do you mind if I just ask you this one question over Zoom? And they say, blah, 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 blah. They say something good. And you say, Evo, wow, that is so good. Do you mind if we just use that, that little thing you just said and just, uh, honor you on social media, would that be okay? And 99% of the time they say yes. And now you have a team of, you've equipped your existing team of people to be able to collect the content that you need and you don't even need to edit it or have a fancy graphics designer or video camera operator. You don't need any of that. Yeah, and all of these things that you're saying, Dennis, are uh, things that I think a lot of businesses should uh, become more aware of because this can really help them to um, strategize and to position uh, their marketing campaigns uh, better as well. And um, speaking about these things, I think there's a lot that our audience could uh, learn from you, specifically in terms of the marketing community and the branding community in particular. Um, and you're involved in a lot of training, a lot of education-related initiatives as well. So could you tell us a little bit more about the types of training that uh, you deliver? We've done a ton of Zooms ever since COVID, but things are opening up, and I love meeting people. I go to conferences all over the world. I've got, I just checked, I have over 6 million miles of airline flying that I've done. And there's something that I abide by called the three C's, conference, client, and college. So usually the client is the one who will fund travel. So I'm willing to go wherever for the right clients, right, for brands, because I learned so much and it's just a lot of fun seeing how brands are building experiences, making sure their analytics are done properly. Maybe their executives want to have an offsite or they want to train all their marketing people on how to use social media properly. The conference is where we get to meet a lot of people. So that's how I keep my knowledge up to date. So the brand conference next year, I'm excited to meet the other people that we've been spending time with on Zoom. I'm old fashioned, I just wanna meet people. I, just, I think it's a lot better than talking through a TV screen. And the third C is the college. So the, the client and the conference will pay my way there and make this viable, because you know we have a business, but then I donate my time to the colleges. So my favorite win-win is a trifecta where I go to a city, like I'm gonna be in New York, next month speaking at a conference so then i'm going to meet a couple clients which are great some big brands in new york but i'm also going to speak at some of the universities as well and donate my time there so that way i can give back help out the faculty and the students also be able to spend time with private clients that want to hire me and then be there at a conference so that because you can't be everywhere at once so if i'm going to be in beijing one time if i'm going to be in la one time i want to try to make the most of that time yeah, this approach sounds um, really comprehensive and also it sounds like it's a way to allow you to connect with different groups of people as well um, at different ages, uh, from different uh, backgrounds um, and really to put together a network of people um, that can uh, engage um, it from different angles with you. So uh, thinking about education and the way that people invest their time in conferences, invest their time in uh, taking courses um, and doing uh, other things for professional development as well. As we move towards the end of our conversation, uh, one of the things that I was wondering about is um, if you could talk to um, all of the big CEOs in the world and you could um, 
tell them what should they spend the little bit of precious extra time that uh, they have on their hands? What would you tell them that uh, they should learn more about um, in the current uh, global economic and, and marketing environment? Labor is only getting more expensive. So your competitive advantage is in your people. We all know that, even if the economy goes south. And the best way is investing in your people so that they are an extension of your brand. The last thing you want is like a Jared with a subway where, you know, they put everything into one particular person and then that person, that personality, that celebrity might not work out. It's more authentic when you have the safety of having multiple people representing your brand and it's organic, it's authentic. It's what social media really was all about and it was more social than media. So this is going to make a lot of agencies unhappy, but I believe that that brand management and the analytics and working with these key customers and influencers or creators, whatever you want to call that, should be brought in-house. And only the executive is the one who will have the courage to be able to do that. Because the people in your organization, the CMO, the director of digital, the head of SEO, all these people, will because they're employees, they don't want to take the risk. They feel it's safer to hire the consultant or hire these other agencies. I coach thousands of agencies, and the big shift is towards the content creation and this collaboration of operations collecting this content that is moving in-house the things you do outsource are going to be where you need an expert to come in and rebuild your website or do this one project but anything that's a process needs to be brought in-house anything that's a project can be outsourced so if you're thinking holistically about your brand Look at what, what kinds of things are one-off that you can hire someone else for and what kinds of things really belong in-house because of that expertise, knowledge of the brand, this kind of thing. And I think you're going to find that social media is not this technical, weird thing that only ch children understand. Because even I don't understand TikTok. And every day there's a new social network. I can't keep up. I'm busy, right? I don't have time to mess around on social media. But from a business standpoint, I know I need to be where the consumers are. So the best way to do that is to talk to the consumers that I have that are in those demographics and then hire them, especially kids. There are these, I have friends of mine that have 6 million followers on TikTok and Evo, guess what? They still drive Uber because they're not making any money. So I can literally leverage those people, pay them a few hundred dollars and have them be brand ambassadors. Right now, because there's not an ecosystem to pay these influencer creator sorts of people, I can take people who have a million subscribers on their YouTube channel and co-create content with them. So I don't have to worry about an ad agency. They know the audience. They're already proven because they, they know what kind of content their audience wants and say, hey, let's co-create. No, make a commercial. Let's co-create some content around something that you care about that somehow involves our brand or product, right? In a non ridiculous commercial like way and, and influencers and creators and people on YouTube whatever you want to call them they understand that so when, when we ask for their advice most of them they're very honored because they're not doing it to make money now the guys at the very very top then they have all these like PR people and agents that want to charge them money and all this but everyone else below that I find they're very easy to work with so if you're the executive let other people in your organization know that it's okay to take a risk. It's okay when you find a customer, when you find a client, someone who actually uses your product or service, empower them to be able to spend $200, to be able to interview them. Allow people in your company to build their personal brand, to become better known on LinkedIn. Yes, a competitor might notice that and want to poach them, but your best people are the ones that the competitors are going to want to steal anyway. So it's to your advantage. It creates loyalty. I've seen this happen in other uh, companies. 
We've helped make it happen by putting these sorts of systems in place. And I think you're going to find social media as a competitive weapon instead of some confusing thing that kids are doing. This is definitely something that um, would benefit all sides, I think, both the employees and the company, and also the way that um, consumers understand this company as well, because uh, this would allow... Um, is allowed to project a lot of what the company does through the stories of these employees, um, through the way that the message of the company and its products were communicated as well. So it's definitely something that I think um, a lot more CEOs should think about and something that uh, hopefully a lot of the uh, CEOs here in China uh, would benefit um, from learning about. So speaking of uh, China and the CEOs here um, that we also work with, um, what about you, Dennis? Uh, are you planning on coming to China anytime yes. soon when we see you here? <laughs> I want to come out for the brand conference. I have other f relatives that you know, are in mainland and in Taiwan and other folks and you know, COVID made things a little bit more difficult, but I plan to be out every quarter or so because you just have to meet people in person. I, I love learning. I love seeing, I mean, there's so much synergy between the U.S. and China. Yeah, and it's definitely something that uh, hopefully um, will uh, get going again uh, very soon and uh, hopefully something that can drive the global economy as well. Uh, Dennis, it was a pleasure to have you today. You have uh, a tremendous amount of knowledge and a tremendous amount of insights that I'm sure our audience will enjoy very much. So thank you very much for being on the Branding Boardroom, and hopefully we'll see you again very soon in China and perhaps uh, every quarter as well. 